Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Don McLean said in his song, Jerusalem, Jerusalem is old, Jerusalem is new. Jerusalem can hold Muslim, Christian, Jew. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. How do different cultures define and observe modesty? Why can't modesty just be a checklist? What does it mean to be kosher? Are there non-kosher foods available in Israel? Joining us today to discuss culture and life, specifically culture and life in Jerusalem, is Mrs. Holly James. Mrs. James teaches Paideia A and 3 for Wittenberg Academy and lives with her husband in Jerusalem. Holly, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Before we jump in with our discussion, give us a little background. You're not originally from Israel, right? That's right. That's right. I'm an American. <laughs> All right. So how did you end up in Israel? Good question. Uh, so my husband, John, is a classics scholar. He's very into ancient Greek, especially. And there's a special institute here in Jerusalem called the Polis Institute that teaches ancient Greek and biblical Hebrew in a spoken method. Uh, and when we heard about this program, we figured it was an opportunity that we couldn't pass up. And so John applied to this program and was accepted. And we moved to Jerusalem uh, in the fall of 2019. So we've been here for just over a year now. How was the initial transition from American life to life in Israel? <laughs> it was pretty jarring, to be honest. Um, we moved here. Uh, we each had like a suitcase and a personal carry-on item on the airplane. So we didn't move here with very much. And uh, we didn't even have an apartment planned out upon our arrival. We just uh, took a leap of faith, I guess you could say. And we spent three weeks running around an unfamiliar country <laughs> with a language that we aren't familiar with, uh, trying to figure out where to live and how to buy groceries. Um, but thankfully, everything has worked out okay, and the Lord has provided very well for us, and it's, it's worked out okay. <laughs> so, John is about a year into his program, and you just started a program as well, right? That is correct, yes. And I've been able to also apply to a different program, but with the same school, the same institute. Um, so John studies ancient Greek and biblical Hebrew, and I'm taking on the modern Hebrew classes as well as um, Arabic uh, to get familiar with the different cultures around here. That is wonderful. I'm sure we'll have uh, much to discuss, not just now, but also in future episodes as as you're able to kind of bring together and reflect on all of these experiences that you are having right now. I can't even wrap my brain around it, but I'm glad that that you are able to bring these insights to us. This is This is great. So Jerusalem is an interesting place. That's for sure. Yes, <laughs> most definitely. Three major world religions claim it as important, and not just on kind of a lip service level, but really as an important place. Before we get to our first topic, which is modesty, how do adherents of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam interact with one another in Jerusalem, kind of at a 50,000-foot level, just to give us some context. It's an interesting blend of living alongside each other and yet remaining very separate in a lot of ways. Like you said, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all have important religious ties to this place. And the Christians, Jews, and Muslims who live here are very earnest in their beliefs. 
And so uh, it's, it's a common thing to see all three religions sort of functioning alongside each other to a degree. Just the other day, I was uh, standing outside the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in the Old City, and it was around noontime when the Muslim call to prayer sounded, and it was almost eerie to see all of these Christians standing outside the church praying and knowing that just right across the courtyard, there were Muslims praying in the mosque that was right there. And just down the street, there were Jews who were also probably praying at that same moment. That is a fascinating thing to ponder. So there are certainly, on the surface, some similarities in terms of, you know, the piety and practice of of all of these religions. But do you see any glaring differences between these three religions? Yes. I, I mean, obviously, <laughs> belief, you know, we, we can certainly, you know, we could certainly go down that road, you know, for at least five. In terms of 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 just what you observe and and see some of the things that our listeners might appreciate in terms of if if I were to go to Jerusalem what would I see ah uh, great question yes i think uh it's probably the easiest maybe this is because i'm a christian and i'm from the west but it's it's very easy for me to tell who is a Jew and who is a Muslim most of the time. Um, it's a little harder to pick out some of the Christians if they're not, um, say, a monk or a nun. But uh, the the Jews all dress very similarly. There are different branches of Judaism here, and they each kind of have their own manner of dress. The way that they dress tells a lot about what they believe. And the same goes for the Muslims then as well. And uh, so walking down the street, you can usually pick out uh, what religion someone adheres to, which is fascinating. <laughs> now, something I hadn't thought about, but it, it came to mind as you were talking there. What sort of variety is there among Christians in Jerusalem? I would say that there are a lot of Roman Catholics here. But there are also a lot of Eastern Orthodox, whether that be Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox. They are very present, especially in the old city of Jerusalem. There are also some Coptic believers, as well as Armenian Christians. Yeah, I think that sometimes we kind of gloss over that when we're thinking about Jerusalem. You know, we think about everything in terms of generalizations, but kind of the picture that you're painting for us is that even within these these religions, there is variation. Uh, you know, sometimes when we're outsiders looking in, everything kind of blends together, but, but you're kind of encouraging us to see this as, you know, there certainly are generalizations. You know, we can kind of plunk people into uh, broad categories. But even within those, it's important to recognize that there are variations within the Christians, within the Jews, which within the, the Muslims. Most definitely, yes, for sure. <laughs> so with these differences in mind, and keeping in mind that, you know, we can't do necessarily a three-hour seminar here in one episode, <laughs> though there's certainly plenty to talk about. Um, so we're we're going to have to, to a certain extent, use some broad brush generalizations. So, so I just want our listeners to know that we're we're not intending this to be kind of the end-all, be-all. Here is your lesson, but that. The purpose of our discussion here today is, as is always the purpose of uh, the Wittenberg Hour discussions, just to help our listeners process and think about things in a different way and to think about these big questions that 
breach borders in terms of the impact that these ideas have all over the world. So with these things in mind, then, let's turn our focus specifically to modesty. This is this is where we're going first. Now, I'm a big define your terms uh, <laughs> sort of gal. Uh, my philosophy club, they it's, it's kind of a, a running joke that anytime we want to discuss something, we first go to Webster's 1828 dictionary to see if the word is even in there. And if it's not, then I just say we can't discuss it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but when you speak of modesty, to what are you referring? I think for the purposes of this discussion, we should look at modesty specifically as a mode of dress. It comes from a, a Latin word with um, being in measure or in a particular manner. Uh, so let's look at the manner in which people here in Jerusalem are dressing. Excellent. That's a fantastic place to start. So we've already mentioned that uh, in Jerusalem, there are not just Christians, uh, Jews, and Muslims. There are uh, a, a lot of different cultures interacting. There are certainly people who live there, but there are also people who visit there. So let's kind of break this down and work through, paint us a picture first of if if we were to go to Jerusalem, what would we see in terms of how Muslims, Jews, Christians, tourists, how how do all of these folks dress? I think the Jews are probably the easiest to spot in a lot of ways because they're the the largest group that's here. And many of the Jews will, especially if they're the ultra-Orthodox Jews, uh, they'll be very formal-looking compared to everyone else around them. The women will be wearing long skirts with thick stockings, closed-toed shoes. Um, if the woman is married, she'll have her hair covered either with a scarf or a wig. Um, and even when it's 97 degrees Fahrenheit outside, this is the, the typical dress for an ultra-Orthodox woman. And the ultra-Orthodox men will also be completely covered. They'll have on um, long sleeves, long trousers, oftentimes a big furry hat in addition to their small yarmulke or kippah underneath the hat. It's kind of a shocking sight for Western eyes. As I said, even when it's 97 degrees out, um, there they are in this uh, all decked out attire. <laughs> and then there'll be some other Jews who maybe aren't as ultra-Orthodox, but are still observant or traditional. And the women will usually be wearing skirts of some variety that go down to at least their knees, and their elbows will also be covered by whatever blouse they're wearing. They may or may not have their hair wrapped. And men of this branch of Judaism will probably be wearing short sleeves, maybe some long pants, closed-toed shoes once again. There are, of course, some secular Jews who maybe will be walking around in shorts and flip-flops, uh, which is, you know, maybe what we're more familiar with seeing in the States. Uh, but even so, the men will have um, like a yarmulke or a kippah on their head to, to observe that law that they have. The Muslim men dress in a very Western style, usually, uh, but the Muslim women will oftentimes be wearing what's called hijab, uh, so not a full um, face veil, but they'll have their hair and their ears covered and wrapped, and then they'll be wearing some sort of long, flowing garment that covers their wrists and down to their ankles then. Uh, as I said earlier, the Christians are a little harder to spot. They don't have a particular dress code unless they are um, in some sort of monastic life, in which case they'll have on, um, like the Greek Orthodox usually wear black robes, and then they'll have tall hats on. Uh, but just uh, 
any other sort of Christian is probably going in to be wearing some part, sort of Western style clothing. The Jews and Muslims, at least what I'm hearing and picturing from what you are saying is there's a lot of covering. I mean, that's kind of the standard. Is that, would that be a correct assessment? Yes, very good. I would say that that's accurate. A lot of covering in both the Jews and Muslims, but then the Christians less so. Do you think this has, or do you observe that the way the Muslims and Jews dress, does this have an impact on the clothing decisions of people who visit Jerusalem? I would say so, especially for visitors who are here for longer periods of time. I think oftentimes the tour groups that just sort of breeze through here, uh, maybe not so much. You're not here for very long, but uh, after you've been here for a while, uh, you you sort of also want to cover up, seeing that everyone else is covered up. And it's uh, a little jarring to see someone who's maybe a tourist on the street who's wearing shorts that are a bit shorter or a tank top. Sure. Um, it's, it, it seems very out of place here. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Just in terms of those who are visiting and like you said, for a longer period of time, they probably haven't changed their beliefs, right? They, they might be Christians or atheists or agnostics or whatever, just being around this very overt, intentional decision to cover, right? That that mm-hmm. in some way impacts the, their own decisions. Yes, yes. And an interesting social pressure <laughs> that... Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That I think nowadays in other places we maybe don't experience in quite the same way. Uh, but I would say it's definitely present here. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily have considered that, you know, the the social pressure toward modesty. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't necessarily have, have considered that. So that's that's fantastic. Now, I guess the uh, a question that also arises is, can you shed some light for us? on perhaps why these decisions toward covering are made. Just on a real brief level, why is such strict modesty and covering, why is that observed by the Jews and Muslims? Fantastic question. I think for both the Jews and the Muslims, their dress code is, is actually a sort of code that's laid out for them in their, in their holy books. For the Jews, they turn to their oral traditions and their interpretations of um, rabbinic literature that they call the, the Mishnah, so that's the oral traditions written down, as well as um, the Talmud, uh, which is what the code of laws that they live that they use to guide their lives day to day. Um, all of those laws are, are written out in the Talmud then. Um, and and they're, they're just that, they're laws that you are expected to adhere to. Uh, and they would say that that's what's guiding them towards um, like salvation and sanctification is keeping these laws in this life. Um, and similarly then for the Muslims, uh, in the Quran, there are several verses um, that describe how to cover yourself. And once again, that's that's working towards what they see will, will affect them in the afterlife then. So these decisions that they are making have been made for long periods of time. I mean, this is a very traditional form of dress relatively consistent, perhaps, 
through the course of the history of these two religions? Yes, definitely. Most definitely. It's interesting to think about, and there are certain, is certainly Christian groups or denominations that hold more strict views of of modesty and it's interesting to ponder these these groups in terms of of authority where i live there are a lot of amish that live around us and you can always tell if someone is amish by how they dress similar to to what you are describing in jerusalem they have very modest dress. I wonder how might the understanding of authority within different cultures play out in the distinctions in views of modesty? Ah, yes. Another interesting question. Probably the the Jews and the Muslims alike, once again, because they have this long-standing tradition and they hold tradition as an authority, uh, that, that really does play into their everyday life and the choices they make when getting dressed in the morning. <laughs> and that uh, maybe if you compare or contrast that with the life of a Christian, uh, we, we don't have any set laws guiding our dress we we just use the term modesty and sort of our own cultures then like you're saying the the amish have their community standards um, for that versus how you or i would dress in our communities um, because our 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 authority within the church and maybe a maybe beyond the authority but perhaps the the aim of our modesty is is a little different, I would say, than the Jews or the Muslims. I think because Christians know that our bodies aren't our own, right? We're, we're bought with a price, so we are to glorify God in our bodies. Our bodies are like a temple, as um, St. Paul says in Corinthians, that uh, that sort of is what's guiding our choices for how to dress versus this idea of a law that must be fulfilled. I like that distinction that you made there in terms of the way Christians view the way we dress. For us, it's not a salvific issue, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Whereas for the Jews and Muslims, it plays right along in there. They have to keep that law or that could impact their eternity. Exactly, exactly. I think that um, a, a Jewish person reading Genesis after the fall when Adam and Eve are physically naked and ashamed of themselves, um, a lot of rabbinic tradition says that that's because they, they realize that they're naked and to be naked is, is shameful. And that's sort uh. of the end of the story. Whereas maybe a Christian reading that verse would say, well, they're physically naked, but also ashamed of their sins. But that's not the end of the story. Uh, God comes along and he provides clothing for them. He covers that. And we also get a promise of a savior who will come to cover our sins for us as well. And we as Christians know that in baptism, our sins are covered. We're, we're clothed with, with Christ. And we don't have that quite the same idea of shame there from that Genesis story. The view of covering, you know, when we encourage our children to, you know, anytime there's there's language of covering in scripture, 
we always ask our children, you know, what does that remind us of? You know, yeah. well, baptism, you know, exactly. <laughs> this, this sort of thing. And yeah. so, you know, Adam and Eve, they, they, exactly as you pointed out, they wanted to cover their sin, but they couldn't. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I mean, they, they were physically incapable of covering their sin. And so in their, in their human reason, because, you know, human reason sometimes gets us in trouble um, in their human reason, they decided, well, if we can't cover our sin, at least we'll do the best we can and we'll just cover our bodies. Right. <laughs> you know, last ditch effort. Ah, God is coming. What do we do? Quick. You know, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I think that sometimes we don't see the freedom you know, we, we talk a lot about the freedom of, of the Christian, especially as Lutherans. We like to talk about the, the freedom of the Christian. Okay. And a lot of times we would lump modesty in that. Well, we can wear what, whatever we want because, and before we get further into that, I think that we need to keep in mind that... It, this distinction that we're seeing between the law of the Jews and Muslims and the the freedom that we have in Christ, that that points us to the fact that we can't save ourselves. You know, something as seemingly unnoticed as what we wear Mm-hmm. points to something very profound that they are confessing and that we are confessing in terms of when we think of covering, we think of Christ's righteousness, right? And, and, and it becomes then, instead of I wear what I wear, because I need to fulfill the law, because if I don't, I might not, whatever comes after death. Instead, it becomes a a freedom insofar as what I wear is part of my love and service for my neighbor. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and And so I think that that when we think of of modesty yes there's certainly freedom but it's it's not a freedom you know it's not free license to do whatever we want we don't have the law telling us you have to wear this or you won't go to heaven but our freedom is not without uh, with not without bounds. Yes, exactly. It's a sort of it, it's an ordered liberty, if you will. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So with this, I would imagine that in order to fulfill the law as a Jew or as a Muslim, and obviously you've pointed out that there are differences in terms of how how men and women respond to this law or or how um how weighty the law is on men and women why why can't modesty be just a checklist because i would imagine that it is for jews and muslims Yes, I would imagine that as well. I don't have their particular checklist, but <laughs> it does seem like because of their their different traditions and the way they interpret certain pieces of their, their scriptures, that yes, it seems like they do treat modesty as some sort of checklist. Um, but I think there's, well, there's definitely a very practical or common sense side to things, why modesty can't be a checklist, in that Bodies come in all different shapes and sizes, and right. all these different shapes and sizes, all these different bodies go through different seasons of life, and they experience changes. And, you know, I don't dress the same way that I did when I was five years old, and 
that's perfectly fine. It would be concerning if I did dress the same way as I did when I was five. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, And so I guess we could try to go through and come up with a checklist for everybody. uh, But it, you know, it's, it's not reasonable to try to do that. But perhaps at a more, um, at a more like philosophical level, if you will. um, And we've kind of we were pointing at this before with that we view modesty as Christians, we view it as a way to love and serve our neighbor. I show respect to others by covering myself appropriately, uh, not because uh, my neighbor, you know, is some sort of monster who couldn't handle it if I didn't dress appropriately, but that I want to help my neighbor stay, you know, be thinking, pure and chaste thoughts, and so I cover myself, and they respond likewise. They cover themselves so that I'm not tempted either. Um, and like like we've said multiple times, it, it doesn't work our salvation for us. It's, it's purely service to our neighbors. I think sometimes we turn... And, and certainly it is still law, right? Yeah. Loving our neighbor mm-hmm. is is law. But there's a freedom that, that we have as Christians that is not experienced by Muslims and Jews. But even so, and, and perhaps this is a bridge too far, <laughs> the, the, the conscientious decisions that are being made by the Jews and Muslims in terms of the fact that they they have to think through what they're wearing. But that can also serve as a, a, a model for us, not insofar as we should wear what they wear, but that intentionality behind what we wear and the decisions that we that we make Especially, you know, once we get past a certain age, um, you know, five or six <laughs> or whatever the case may be, you know, that that once once we get to a certain age, whatever that age might be, that that these decisions that we make, because they are impacting our neighbor, they need to be intentional. Yes, definitely. Most definitely. And I think there's also a degree of self-respect in modesty. So it is important that we, uh, that we think about others as we dress ourselves. Uh, but the way we dress ourselves can really impact how we view our own selves as well. Um, and by taking the time to cover what needs to be covered and making sure that we're dressed appropriately for the day, uh, can really set the tone of the day and can set the tone of our interactions with our neighbors as well and how, how we're viewing ourselves. Uh, so if I'm feeling confident for the day, I can go up to people and be friendly to them versus if I'm wearing you know, baggy sweatpants and a hooded sweatshirt, I'm not feeling ready to take on the day necessarily. And maybe I'll snap at my neighbor. <laughs> Right, right. So there's kind of this thought that modesty only applies to women, that that women need to be intentional and think about what they what they wear. But you're suggesting for us that 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 intentionality isn't only and always just about covering what needs to be covered, but that it's also about our mindset in terms of how we are planning to, or that at least we're ready to interact with our neighbor in a God-pleasing way. Certainly, yes, yes. One last thing about modesty. In terms of 
modeling for our children. You know, we we joked rightfully about when we were five or six or whatever, you know, (laughs) that, you know, kind of anything goes. But it's interesting when you walk through stores and I try to avoid stores just because I don't like shopping um, <laughs> and never have, um, you know, if I, if I can't find it at the, at the farm and fleet store, you know, I really don't need it has <laughs> kind of been my, my approach to things. Um, but there is a, a certain degree of children observe and, what they observe as children really forms them for adulthood. And there are a lot of clothes out there that are intended for for young girls that are probably not appropriate for anyone to wear. Mm-hmm. Definitely. <laughs> so thinking about about that in terms of both young ladies and young men, modesty becomes something that is is part of formation in our younger years so that as we are growing and as we understand ourselves in relation to our neighbor, that we are prepared and equipped whether we are men or women, to be able to love and serve our neighbor through our modesty. We can definitely work on ourselves in that regard by making sure that the clothes we do have fit well. Things that no longer fit well can be donated someplace so that other people can find them and enjoy them and use them. And uh, it's okay to also tell young girls, no, that's not appropriate. And it's okay to tell young boys the same thing or when when they grow out of their clothing to, if you're their own parent, you don't want to go around just calling out random (laughs) children. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) But to lovingly tell them the truth, uh, that no, no, this is important to cover it up, or that that shirt's a little tight, or oh, those pants look a little baggy. You must have, you know, shot up a couple inches. Let's let's find something else that fits you, um, and uh, and to take the time to think about th- those clothes that we're wearing, but then also to to get beyond that. Uh, we don't want young people to grow up hating their bodies or being ashamed of them because our bodies are a a gift from God. Uh, And so if we can accept the clothes that we have and accept the bodies that we have and then, and then get beyond that to, to interacting with our neighbors. So get dressed for the day. It's time to go. You need to go to school. (laughs) Um, Don't spend 20 minutes trying to find a shirt, (laughs) that sort of thing. And that may be as simple as laying your clothes out the night before (laughs) so that in the morning it's there and you don't have to think about or be tempted by other things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that, that what you have emphasized and, and reinforced for us is that, that, modesty is is certainly important and we should and we should consider it and we should be intentional about it but just like myriad other things that does not define who we are that who god says we are that that defines that that defines us and because god has called us his child, because we're made in the image of God, that that is the underlying thing that influences our decisions when it comes to modesty. Yes, most certainly. And to come back to the, the point on baptism, and, that, and like you're saying, um, our identity is, is in Christ and that we are baptized into, into the name of Christ. Uh, we he's covered all of those sins and the imperfections that that we don't like and 
and that we're forgiven. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, while you are in Jerusalem, let's keep talking about Jerusalem. <laughs> so certainly, if if I were to fly in and walk out of the airport, I would see what people are wearing. And, and certainly what people are wearing is an important and interesting aspect of of culture. But so also another interesting aspect of culture is food. So tell us about food in Jerusalem. Ah, yes, yes. The food in Jerusalem is is delightful and and varied. Uh, I think my favorite food since moving here has either been falafel or shawarma. Uh, falafel is um uh, mashed chickpeas that are then rolled into little balls and deep fried, and you can get it stuffed into a pita or wrapped up in a tortilla-like bread. They add in other bits of like salad and pickled vegetables and things. And then shawarma is a type of grilled meat that they can once again stuff into bread or wrap in a tortilla. And both are delightful, absolutely delightful. <laughs> Now, where would these foods fall in terms of the the cultural influence? Who brought these foods to Jerusalem? Or are they just kind of universal Jerusalem foods? That's probably, that's a good question. I would say that falafels probably contested and that some of the Jews probably claim that it's a it's a very Jewish food from around here, and uh, maybe over on the Arabic side of things they would claim try to claim that as well. Uh, shawarma is definitely more of uh, a Middle Eastern like Arabic style food that you can also find maybe in in like India a little bit further east from here. Um, yeah, so I I think. Uh, Maybe today you can walk down the street and you would see both foods available from a, a Jewish shop as well as from a Muslim shop. Uh, so today nobody really has a claim over it. <laughs> gotcha. Mm -hmm. Would you say that in general that one culture dominates over others? when it comes to food, not just, uh, not just falafel, <laughs> but, yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> but just in general, if you, if you were looking for food in, in Jerusalem, who, who dominates? Mm, yes. I would say that most of the food scene is probably dominated by, by Jewish culture, whether that be, um, Sephardic Jews who are coming from Spain or the Ashkenazi Jews who come from other parts of Europe um, or maybe even uh, like the Jews around who are from the Middle East then as well. Uh, they probably dominate the food culture just uh, insofar as kosher laws go. Um, Tell us about kosher. What, what is kosher? Yes, so kosher is the Ashkenazi or the European pronunciation of the the word, the Hebrew word kasher, which means to be fit. So it's applied to food then, meaning it's fit for consumption. It's it's good to eat then. These kosher laws are called kashrut, and they are based primarily on the laws we can see in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Uh, these laws have been changed a little bit and passed down as well through like oral traditions and they've morphed as food preparation has morphed um, <laughs> since we now have like factory produced foods and things. These laws not only apply to the food themselves, but to the preparation and handling of the food. Uh, and there's all sorts of laws about uh, not mixing meat and milk and uh, not mixing the utensils that have touched meat and with the utensils that have touched milk. Um, certain foods are okay to eat during certain times of the year, uh, 
whereas you have to refrain from those foods during times like Passover. Uh, it's there, there are many, many laws. I don't know all of them because I don't keep a kosher kitchen here, but it's, it's fascinating to visit a restaurant and know that you will either be served food that has meat in it, or you will be served food that has milk in it, and, and you can't serve the same thing in the same restaurant. That's really interesting. So how does how does that impact, for example, tourists? You know, how do they get to know? So, so if a tourist comes, and, and I'm being very American in this question. <laughs> so, so an American tourist uh, comes to Jerusalem and wants a burger, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, <laughs> a cheeseburger. Let's say a cheeseburger, right? So we can get the the milk and the meat right. uh, going on at the same time. <laughs> um, is is that a thing? Uh, you could probably find, maybe not in Jerusalem, maybe over in Tel Aviv, you could find a restaurant that would serve you actual real meat with actual real like milk based cheese on in the same same hamburger. Uh, but in Jerusalem, I think it would be quite a stretch to find that. You could either have imitation meat that then has cheese on top, or you could have real meat that has some sort of plant-based milk, like plant milk-based cheese on top. Um, <laughs> so there is a, a McDonald's, a kosher McDonald's just down the street. It's much more expensive than like a McDonald's in the States. So I haven't actually tried the hamburgers there yet because I'm not sure I can wrap my mind around spending $10 on a McDonald's hamburger. But right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I guess um, they, they like the idea of trying to mix meat and milk, but they, of course, don't do it. <laughs> right, right. That is fascinating. I've, I've not thought of that aspect of of things. So if any of our listeners are planning to visit Jerusalem at any point, it's these are good things to know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, were were you were you and John aware of all of these things before you went over? Certainly not all of them. Uh, I, I knew kosher was a thing and I, I knew that there were lots of rules to it, but I didn't realize the extent uh, of all of those rules. Um, <laughs> so that it's a little shocking when you first come. <laughs> right, right. So have your have your food preferences changed or adapted since you moved from the United States? They have definitely changed. Uh, we tend to not eat a lot of meat here just because meat is very expensive and sure. <laughs> so we're students on a budget <laughs> right, right. Um, but then, then it's a, a good excuse to get creative in the kitchen and try cooking lots of things with lentils or chickpeas and to to explore some some of the different cuisine around here then uh, but every once in a while, I do still crave like a cheeseburger. Um, <laughs> it would be very exciting right. upon return to the States to sink my teeth into one. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. That will, that will be fantastic. <laughs> so the Jews have, have kosher. Do the Muslims have similar rules for their food? They do have some rules, certainly. Uh, they are not nearly as strict. The only meat product that they're forbidden to eat is pork. And then they're also supposed to abstain from alcohol and anything that has animal blood in it that hasn't been cooked. So like other meats are fine because it's cooked, um, but some like medications or multivitamins sometimes include like animal blood or products of animal blood. So they're, they're supposed to refrain from that. Uh, their laws deal more with how the food is prepared. So like um, the proper butchering of animals. And if, if you can't find a Muslim butcher who follows those rules, the, the next best thing is to then 
seek out either a Christian butcher or a Jewish butcher. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. That's that's interesting. So so similarly, there are our preparation guidelines and and distinctions, but more on the front end rather than in the actual eating. Would that be a correct assessment? Yes, yes, that's that's very good. A good assessment. So in in all of this, and thank you first of all for just giving us this insight and look into the world of Jerusalem. It's I'm absolutely fascinated and look forward to uh, future discussions about all of this. Yes. It's one thing to read about it, right? It's another thing to actually live it. Definitely. Yes, <laughs> for sure. So I, 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 I certainly appreciate the, the insights that you have given us today on kind of a final note, what would you say is the greatest takeaway that we should should have from the distinctions that we have discussed today in terms of the the restrictions, the the very law-based discussion on both modesty, but also in in food preparation. What what would our listeners benefit from most in terms of how they should come away from our discussion today? Very good question. I would say it's very important to keep in mind that all of these laws that are over the Muslims and especially the laws that are over the Jews, aren't in and of themselves bad. Uh, in fact, they're, they're good. We should, we should be modest uh, in the way that we dress and loving in the way that we interact with our neighbors. But where these two religions fall short is that they miss out on Christ. And as Christians, we need to focus on Christ and to not get caught up and tangled up in these laws that Christ has fulfilled. And we can enjoy the ordered liberty or this this Christian freedom uh, in that we know our salvation doesn't depend on all of these laws and that we don't have to keep a kosher kitchen in order to be saved. Our salvation comes from Christ, Christ's death and resurrection and our, our baptism uh, the Holy Spirit works faith in us through this baptism. And that that's what's really important at the end of the day. <laughs> Mrs. Holly James teaches Paideia A and Paideia 3 for Wittenberg Academy. Holly, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you. It's been a delight. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.